This episode of the Power Connect podcast is brought to you by Origis Energy and Origis Services. Solar, which was already stressed to the limits with availability of in supply chain and labor, the, the opportunity is now doubled. That's great. That's good for the world. It's good for the industry. But there's not that many panels on the planet. There's not that many inverters. There, there's not that many technicians. There's not that many construction people. The problems that are immediately in front of us are pretty massive. I'm pretty sure that we're going to address them, but it is going to take some time in between now and then is going to be a whole lot of stress. So everybody just needs to buckle up. Welcome into the Power Connect Podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode 35 of the show rolls along on your Wednesday. Glad to have you guys on board as we are each and every episode. And we've got another great show for you today as we welcome to the program. Managing Director of Origis Services, Mr. Michael Iman, a fellow Navy man, much like myself, although uh, he was an officer, so obviously far more important than just your average little old enlisted folk. But uh, no, I kid, I kid. But no, I'll say this much, one of the more enjoyable and just entertaining episodes that we've certainly done as part of the Power Connect podcast thus far. And of course, uh, Clean Techs and Origin Services are going to be getting together for the big Day Zero event and the reception that's going down October 24th. So we'll uh, hear from Mr. Michael Iman about that. So definitely stay tuned for that. But before we get down to today's episode with Mr. Michael Iman, kind of laying out what he'll discuss and some of the important issues, very eye-opening and just candid view of what's going on in the solar industry. But before we do that, make sure you follow the Power Connect podcast over on Apple, over on Spotify. Check us out on the website as well, thepowerconnect.net. And of course, you can also follow us on LinkedIn. Fred Davis is my page. And then of course, over at the Power Connect page as well, give it a follow. And of course, if you want to be a guest and or podcast partner, reach out to us through those channels. Easy to do. We can make it happen and would love to have you on board. All right, let's get down to today's episode. Mr. Michael Iman, Managing Director, Origis Services. Just a tremendous conversation he and I had. A lot of good fun with that. A lot of great information. Former Navy man, much like myself, so we had a few laughs about that. But more importantly, he talked about the need for more transparency in the solar industry, kind of how Origis Service got its start, and how the Inflation Reduction Act some of the problems, and not necessarily problems, but the challenges that it poses initially that we're going to have to, as an energy economy, have to get through those challenges first before we can see the bigger picture. But again, he paints a great picture and kind of lays it out as to what needs to be done first before we can start to reap the benefits of a renewable and solar energy economy. Again, great conversation. One that I promise you, you will learn more from after you get done listening to it. So without further ado, please welcome to the program, Mr. Michael Iman. Orgis Energy, as a lot of people know, was a developer for quite a long time, uh, mainly focused in the Southeast. In about 2018, they got an investment through Global Atlantic Fund Group, which later became KKR through acquisition on their side. And that really tied part of that deal Global wanted to take the projects that came through the pipeline and then and then those were becoming their projects. And then now they're also, now they're on the board of the company, right? So now you're connected in, in a very real way to these projects long-term, whereas developers typically, once they sell a project, they're sort of, they're sort of out and they move on to the next, next one. And so at that point in time, they realized pretty quickly that they, they needed to really have a hand in the operations of these, of these sites. I had left MaxGen 
some months prior had started Renewbot at that time, but was really looking for, you know, my next gig and was in contact with Guy and Samir, Guy being the founder and CEO and Samir being the CFO number two or uh, chief investment officer, really. And so I just, it was just happenstance in the timing that I was talking to them right at that moment. I was the right person with the right credentials to kick that off. So I, I started with them in September of 2018. And by January of 2019, January, February of 2019, Orgis Services LLC as a wholly owned subsidiary of Orgis Energy was created and launched. And we've grown from that blank sheet of paper to where we're at today at about almost two gigawatts, growing at about two to four gigawatts per year on a go forward basis. And so what is kind of your day to day overall responsibilities as managing director of Orgis Services? So as managing director of origin services, it's, you know, I really function as sort of like a general manager or what, you know, what people would call president or general manager in a lot of U.S., you know, American sort of structures, which means I run that company. I run the, the wholly owned subsidiary. We do full scope O&M and asset management for utility and, and, uh, and DG assets as well as storage. We'll be expanding into, you know, wind, offshore wind, hydrogen, you know, as as the industry develops and as Orgis Energy develops, as well as based on the needs of our third-party clients, for which we have quite a few. We have about 80% of the stuff we hold today is actually with third-party. So we offer those services. We built them for internal use, but we offer them for everyone. So we, we approach these projects from an owner perspective because we are an owner. So we're concerned about the full life cycle and and we like to really get involved with developers early in the process because we understand what they're dealing with because we that's what we deal with, you know, in our relationship with Orgis Energy as part of Orgis Energy. And so um, so that helps us to connect early on and helps us to shepherd through the full life cycle of these of these projects as you know, as an operating entity. So we've got to be, sorry, I should have said, so we have a full, we are now have a full low certified medium compliant remote operations center here in Austin, Texas. I think it's the only compliant or certified solar operations center in the state of Texas today. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more, but at the moment that I think that's the case. And we have assets from Florida to Arizona that we're monitoring on a daily basis. From a managing standpoint, what have you kind of had to learn through this process in the last few years, especially as we've seen, you know, bottlenecks, we've seen more folks get involved, but at the same time, too, you're seeing a lot of developers buying other developers. I mean, it's become, I mean, dare I say the wild, wild west, uh, you know, but as this thing proliferates, I mean, you've got an industry right now that is operating at full cylinders, but at the same time, too, it's still very nascent at the same time. How have you guys kind of navigated through that while, you know, developing and building your own portfolio and dealing with, you know, Dozens and however many you know developers you're looking to partner with. So I'm going to boil your question down to how are we navigating the chaos of the solar coaster? Even better, even better. Is that is that what you <laughs> what you said? I think that's what you said. So I you know I'm not I'm not that smart, Fred. So sometimes I gotta I gotta like boil it down. To hey, just a two navy guys words. talking to each other. You've picked up on what I was talking you know, about. There's a ton of complexity upstream in the supply chain. There's a ton of complexity in construction, the the logistics and the financial markets and the changing incentives create a ton of chaos upstream of operations. 
we deal with the stuff after it's built and when it's operating. And so the, the, what we really sort of struggle with are the, the parts of that chaos that become embedded in the projects for their lifetime. Okay. Things like things like the production expectations because of the way it was financially modeled or the 8760 inputs to the PVSYS and whether or, not, whether or not those actually match reality or even how the PVSYS was done to begin with. And I'll give you an example. In the Southeast, where you have rolling terrain and you have, you know, land that and, and terrain that causes you to make these sites that are not like a perfect square or a perfect circle, but they're, they're kind of roaming all over the countryside, up and down hills. You traditionally, the way the PVSYS is applied is they'll, they view it as a, from a mathematical modeling perspective, as a plane with the same, the same angle uh, relative to the sun. And then it contemplates the seasonality of the sun, but it assumes that the land is all one level and has the same sort of southern or southwestern exposure, depending on how you set it up. Sure. It's more accurate to model a site, like I was saying, which is becoming more and more common now that we're out of the, the deserts of the West, these large, flat, dry areas with vast amounts of land, that you really have to look at them like facets on a gym where each part of that plant where it's built has a slightly different production capability, even a different production capacity based on how it is situated relative. And so you, so you have to do a different, to, to properly model that, you might do 15 different PV CISs and then net those together. Oh, wow. But nobody does that. But that's the most accurate way to do it. So you have that happening and then you also have just, you know, the desire to push the expectations of production up for financial reasons, to push the cost down for financial reasons. And, and those are always somewhat disconnected from reality. Certainly projecting those costs in an environment like we have today where inflation and everything is anyone's guess, in a world that has become less stable from a global a competition of global powers perspective which is affecting the availability of supply chains, you know, parts, the cost of those things, raw materials, goods and services, all of it, even the migration of people as a workforce. Those long-term projections, and we're talking 30, 40 years for a solar facility, are, are much less, you, you have to assume more instability in those, but, but we don't have that traditionally. And so when those things get to the site existing in reality, what that means is, there's often a disconnect between what the production expectations and what they actually are uh, based on how the site physically in reality is, how it was constructed, what materials, what the land looks like, all of that. And then there's, and then there's also typically within the first 12 to 24 months, a bit of a come to Jesus or deity of your choice for, you know, the costs as well. Right. Well, we thought it was only going to cost this. Well, that was never going to be true, but you wouldn't you wouldn't believe otherwise. And so here we are. And now we're telling we're showing you what the truth is. And we see this over and over and over again. So um, like the kilowatt hour analytics report, that's I think the first one was last year and they just released another one this year, continues to document a large portfolio performance across the United States and show that that from a production perspective, most of them are not where 
people expect they are. They're six to eight percent off the southeast, four to six percent off in the south, three to five in the west. You know, there's and it's and it's really just these these things playing out. And so that's the complexity that that we fight on the back end. It's matching expectations to reality when people are incentivized to really hold to those expectations, whether they were ever really true or not. So how do you reconcile then when you're talking to these folks and they're saying, well, we were told this, and then you guys come in and say, look, we, this, this, okay, great. That's all well and good, but this is the reality of it. And is it, is in that baseline reestablished? Like, okay, look, this is what you can expect now. And then I got to imagine that there's got to be some sort of financial impact or, you know, I mean, how much, you know, maneuverability is there after those first 12 to 24 months? You know, it really depends on the amount of room they have to maneuver and absorb, you know, the reality versus the model really depends on how it was, how that funding stack was put together and, and how much profit there is. If that modeling was really tight to a really, you know, aggressive PPA, or you've got a large percentage of back leverage debt or something like that in there, you may not have a lot of, you, you're probably going to have to go back and renegotiate with that stack um, because there's not enough room to absorb the reality. And I'm sure, as I'm sure you can imagine the amount of angst, meetings, anger, frustration that happens in those is, is huge. And we're like directly in the firing line. Like it's right at us, you know, all the time as operators. But the truth is, is that as operators, there's also not a lot we can do about it. You know, if, if you make aggressive assumptions about the weather, well, I don't control the weather. If I controlled the weather, I'd be flying around the world in my G6, making it rain in the desert and cashing billion dollar checks. And Fred, you and I would not be talking right now, right? But I do not control the weather. And you'd be the you one know, flying. I, and I, I, no, I wouldn't even fly myself. If I had that much money, I wouldn't want to fly. Then I'd, I'd have to stop, you know, drinking 200 year old bourbon or whatever it is I'd be doing back there. So, you know, it, it, so that, yeah. So there are things we don't control. We don't control the materials the site's built from. We don't control the site choice. We don't control the assumptions around shade, you know, shading, internal, external, perimeter, horizon shading. We don't control, you know, production assumptions based on panel degradation rates, you know, because most of the, to be honest, most of the panel manufacturers, you know, they, they say the rate is this, the IE says it's that, but then if you send it into the warranty, they, they assume plus or minus for the warranty and they assume an, an apply and apply a measurement error to the equipment you're measuring against. Mm. So the difference in production can be quite significant without triggering a warranty event, but that's not clear in the documentation. And when we tell our owners that it's always a surprise and it's never a happy one. And so there's all these things that are, that happen all the time in the industry that when you're on the operations side, you see over and over and over again, but you still have to have that same conversation over and over again with a counterparty that is not, not, not only surprised, but whose basic financial assumptions it undermines. And so like all unwelcome news, the first response is almost always, we disagree that doesn't match with what our assumptions are because we are incentivized 
by the assumptions we made. And we have to, over time, break through that with reality. And that's always a painful process. Have you ever had to bite your tongue and say, when you want to say, well, you know what happens when you assume? I, I, I'm surprised I have any tongue left. So, look, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, and I guess the other thing is, too, and so this, again, dovetails off the conversation you and I had earlier this week, is I'm surprised that, you know, there hasn't been more litigation comes to this, but I guess at that point, you know, I mean, are, are these, these contracts are pretty airtight with, the, with how they're written, and I mean, I, I would imagine that some of these developers and what have you, I mean, w- were they just not looking at the fine print? I mean, I know that there's people that get paid, you know, exorbitant amounts of money to comb over these these contracts i'm surprised that nothing's been done or maybe this is the, the start of that process where more of these contracts aren't being scrutinized more there's a lot more litigation that happens that people know about because inevitably they're always settled there's always gags around them much like politicians uh girlfriends and boyfriends that their spouses don't know about you know money exchanges hands everybody stays quiet and they all move on happily and so you just don't realize how often it's really happening but that litigation does occur i will say Litigation is is typically results in a fantastically bad, bad outcome for all parties. Okay. The lawyers get paid, but rarely, you know, there's almost always, you know, AAA baseball type arbitration requirements, things like that, which skew, you know, the strategy. So you, into like all or nothing types of which then force parties to negotiate. And that's all great. But inevitably, you end up negotiating for something that doesn't make anybody whole right? Other than the attorneys. And if there's any attorneys listening to this, I apologize, but you guys charge an awful lot and you come out ahead when everybody loses. So take the heat and cash the check. I don't know what else to say. So, and that's the reality. So I don't, I think probably there's more litigation than you see, but I think that a lot of the reason why a lot of that litigation doesn't happen is because typically in these contracts, there's exclusions for consequential damages, you know, there's exclusions for, you know, strict liability or, or even um, strict, you know, simple negligence is often excluded. You have to get to gross negligence, malfeasance or malpractice where you've got to prove intent. And that's a very high bar. And so I've got a bunch of books that I keep here in the office and I keep them for everybody. I'm always buying business books and we, we read them. The only one I keep on my desk is my business law book because I refer to it so much. There's a lot of contracts. The stuff is very limited. The panel manufacturers, the OEMs, the, the the EPCs, the developers, the financiers have become very good at litigating their uh, mitigating their risk, and so when the music stops, there's often you know no no chairs left. I would imagine you've probably gotten pretty good at conflict resolution over the last few years. I like to think so. I, I don't know that the success rate of that would support that statement because it's just such a tough environment. We've got the Inflation Reduction Act, as we alluded to at the top of the show, that has got the entire globe spinning, the entire globe buzzing, uh, and finally, for all the right reasons, as, as you know, the U.S. finally takes a demonstrative role in uh, the energy transition globally. What does the Inflation Reduction Act, and I know you, like many others, are probably still combing through the, the hundreds, thousands of pages that, that, is, that is the IRA, but just from a 30,000-foot view, and as somebody who's probably been up that high, um, what are you seeing as far as how it affects uh, Origin Services, and what are some of the uh, TBDs that uh, you're looking at? Well, I'm only on page 9,753. <laughs> You're waiting for the Cliff Notes version to come out. Uh, I'm waiting. Yeah, I got a long way to go. But, you know, look, I think the 
the reality is, is the government has come out with a direction and now the different agencies, the IRS, DOE, Department of Labor, you know, they've got to come out with how they interpret and, you know, and provide more clear guidance. Things like the U.S. content, you know, percentages and how that's calculated to count as U.S. content towards an additional 10% on the ITC. No one's really sure what that is yet. No one knows what that means. Does it, if it comes from NAFTA, does that count? Does Mexico count? What about Canada? If they bring it through, but you improve it, how much of that percentage is it based on the percent and dollar values of the material that are there? I, you know, we don't have those rules yet, right? So as that stuff comes out, this stuff will be clearer. I think from the operator's perspective, first, first and foremost, I would say, Woodmax number, and I think I saw it the other day uh, in their report, was that you know utility scale solar. This was an increase in that market by like eighty-two percent. I think that number is probably going to prove to be low. So let's assume as a base case, solar, which was already stressed to the limits with availability of in supply chain and labor. The, the opportunity is now doubled. That's that's great. That's good for the world. It's good for the industry. But there's not that many panels on the planet. There's not that many inverters. There, there's not that many technicians. There's not that many construction people. You know, we are the problems that are immediately in front of us are are pretty massive. I'm pretty sure that we're going to we're going to address them. But it is going to take some time. And between now and then is going to be a whole lot of stress. So everybody just needs to buckle up. I look at it this way. We call it the solar coaster for a reason. And on the downhill portions where you're out of control and careening from side to side, you can either stress about it or you can throw your arms in the air and enjoy the ride. And uh, so I, I'm a throw my arms in the air kind of guy. That's kind of where we, I see us right now. The other thing I'll say is on the operations side, operations, construction, heavily dependent on labor and, and cost of labor is the biggest driver to both profitability and our own costs, right? So these cost assumptions that everybody has had have to change. They have something in there for the ITC. There's now a link to Davis-Bacon or what, what, what is known in other places as prevailing wage. That is a list, a set list of wages that goes county by county and, and sort of job type by job type, and there's all these job type codes at the federal level um, that say that you must pay no less than X dollars per hour. Well, in some markets, that's that's about where the market is. In some markets, it's 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 below, but in most, it's it's above. And so the net effect of that is, if you take the ITC, uh, is that labor rates are going to be higher and you don't just have to pay more. You also have to pay for and implement compliance programs, which cost money to show that you're complying with Davis bacon because you have to be able to, to prove that. Right. And every time somebody crosses a County line, their labor rate changes, even if they do it three times in a day. Oh, wow. So, so that becomes a bit of a nightmare for certain types of work like DG, which is dispatch where they're crossing 
county lines or large facilities like the Solar Star facility we did at SunPower where part of it was in Kern County and part of it was in LA County. And there were different labor rates depending on where you were located on the same facility. So it adds, it not only does it raise the labor rate, but it adds complexity, which means cost. On top of that, it really only applies to new projects, but it resets the market. If somebody comes in and is building a new site near one of my existing sites, and they're paying a higher Davis-Bacon rate than we are, do you think my technicians are just going to hang out on my site? No, they're going to take that job and roll, Right. So it forces the entire market up. Inherently, I, I feel like that's a good thing. I feel like our field personnel are the ones that are most deserving of, of a good living wage. And I think, you know, the ethical part of me says that it's that it's good, but it is going to reverberate through the industry, up through the financiers, and all the way up to affect to affecting PPA rates. And you see people going and renegotiating PPA rates today because of the different dynamics that are happening around the globe. And so that, there's that. And labor is hard. We already can't find enough people. And I've been talking a long time. We're supposed to take breaks. But there's one last thing. The PTC was added as something that is, can be applied to solar. P, performance, right? So it is a performance-based credit. So remember what I said earlier about modeling yeah. assumptions? Yeah. Well, now you've got a PTC that makes the consequences of those modeling assumptions matching reality even higher okay. because people are going to be relying on that expected PTC to hit the financial model expectation. It'll get burdened into the, into the expectations and the costs on these projects, which will get contemplated at the PPA negotiating table. So performance now really matters and the importance of performance matching reality is even more important because the consequences of a miss are higher. They're multiplied. But this should make your job a little bit easier, though, right? When you when you uh, go talk to these developers? Or at My least maybe a little crossed. more pleasant? Look, fingers crossed. I am hoping it means that the projects that come down the pipe now have, and that are attached to the PTC, they've taken great pains to make sure that, they, that, that it's a realistic set of expectations and numbers. If it's not which I think is going to be the first tranche of them, then those conversations are now going to be even harder. This is really an opportunity then for Origin Services to kind of stand above the rest and really take the lead in being kind of that company that folks know, look, you guys are putting in the work, you're doing the cert, you know, you're doing the, the due diligence and, you know, you're keeping your eyes open across the entire uh, spectrum from soup to nuts. I try to make sure that we stand above the rest. We mostly just hire people that are over six feet. <laughs> That makes it that makes it simpler. It keeps us, you know, always looking over top. So if you're at a show and you want to see the Origin Services guys, just look for the the heads that are slightly above everybody. That's probably one of us. Look, I believe in what we're doing. The people that are here believe in what we're doing. I could have done anything when I came out of the military service because I was, according to the the world, you know, qualified for nothing. And so, and so when you got a blank sheet, you can do anywhere, you can go anyplace, right? Pick a direction. I picked this one because I wanted to continue to serve in some way. And if we can build energy independence and dominance, technological dominance, economic dominance in a new industry that's renewables, and we can break our reliance on, on foreign forms of power, which you see 
you see the you know the, the the consequences of that playing out in Europe today. You know, if we can do that, then no one has to go overseas and do the things that people like you and I had to do anymore. At least not for that reason. Right. Let's 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 do it to save lives and to protect people's freedom and not to protect oil revenues. So so I came into this industry in order to try to serve by other means. So we believe in what we're doing. And, and because of that, you know, it's important to us to be a voice in the industry, not because it feeds our ego or because it makes money for Orgis or Anton or, or, or because I get to buy another A&M shirt. It, it, it's, it's about, it's about going, getting up every day and getting out of bed because you believe in what you're doing because it's the right thing to do. And that is who we are. That is who I am. Origis is not, you know, we work with oil and gas companies. You know, we we work PPAs and stuff with oil and gas companies. We're all in this together. But you got to believe in what you're doing or it just makes it a lot harder. Amen to that. You got me wanting to go uh, dust off my dress blues after we get off with this conversation. Uh, we'll start winding. Mine are a little, mine are a little tighter than they <laughs> I was going to say, I put on about 60, 70 pounds since my Navy days. So I don't know how well they'd fit these days. And I've been a believer that, you know, over the course of the last two, two and a half years of, of, of doing these podcasts and talking to folks from across the spectrum is that we have taken kind of this buckshot approach to how this is going to go down. And this is where the IRA helps. How do we get some more oversight and or maybe directions, the better word, organization to kind of help get all this stuff and, you know, pun intended, flown in the right direction? I'm not sure how to answer that because there's a political interface, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. It, it, you know, the, getting more direction implies more direct control over some by some entity with the authority to do so. Yeah. Regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on, the United States historically is not and people would disagree with this because particularly people who've only been in the United States and haven't seen other systems, you know, up close and personal, but historically the United States does not control, you know, its resources like other countries, most countries, oil and gas companies like Saudi Aramco, as an example, are an extension of the government. Yeah. Government. Yeah, exactly. Are they're, they're an extension of the government, and the government owns and controls the resources in the ground, on the land, and on the surface. They make all the rules. They make all the decisions. And those entities are governmental entities. In the United States, the government leases those resources or gives access to them, and then they let, they let private companies go drive those. And so that creates... So that's a reason why so many of the technologies today, like fracking and things like that, horizontal drilling in traditional power came from the United States. Again, somebody's going to come up and say, that's wrong. It was this guy. Okay, I get it. Okay, I'm wrong. Let's just move on. So, but that's so much of that, you know, that's why there's so much innovation because that creates competition. So it's not in the United States' structural or historical nature to provide that structure and direction like that. So it's a bit of a loaded question from that perspective. And you ask, how are we going to get that structure and direction? And, and my short answer is, given our history and given our, our governmental and our geopolitical structures, I think, you know, they're going to provide some broad guidance yeah. 
They're going to provide certain stimulus. And then the rest of us are going to create companies and fight it out. <laughs> yeah. And maybe, and maybe the IRA and then, is the impetus. And out for that, of that right? will, come, will, will come innovation and chaos and opportunity. That's it. That's it. We'll get you out of here with this. Day zero over in Austin, Origis celebrating. And again, and, and I'll let you tell it, but uh, day zero, a big event and a long overdue event for the fine folks over at Origis and Origis Services. Yeah, so we we were going to cut the ribbon on this thing. We we're pretty proud of this operations center. You know, it's it's a big commitment to build one of these things. I I, I normally tell people the rule of twos: two years, two gigawatts, and two million dollars. That's what you need. It's not far off, by the way, as it's been playing out. So, but we were going to cut the ribbon on this in March of 2020. Obviously, some other things occurred. The world had other ideas. The world went took a hard left for a couple of years, spent most of that year sitting in my office, looking through the glass in my office, through the glass in the rock at the people in the rock and just kind of waving from a distance with the rest of the office working from home. It was not fun. Certainly wasn't worthy of showing anybody anything. And, and so that's been delayed. And so in the meantime, we've, we've built up, you know, a presence here. We've got uh, almost two gigawatts under management today uh, with people in the field and the operations center. And so we, we've, we've been working with SAMNA as a partner for a lot of years. Uh, they do, they do great conferences. They, we've been trying to encourage them to do a conference in Texas for years. They finally said, you know what, we're going to do it this year. We're going to do it in the fall. And they came to us. We said, look, fantastic. We'll sponsor it. And Oh, by the way, we want to do a reception the night before, since all these great people like you, Fred, are going to be in town um, we wanted to make sure we served them some drinks. We've got like a solar technology petting zoo that we're putting just outside where we're bringing in, you know, Renewbots bringing in a mower, Solar Cleanos bringing in some units, some robotic units. We've got um, some other folks bringing in some technology so you can put your hands on it and see sort of how the future of solar is developing. You know, um, we're going to walk people through different stations with stops for drinks in between talk to them about field operations, technical operations, you know, compliance, safety, you know, you name it and answer questions. But more than anything, we're going to be just sort of cutting the cutting the ribbon and showing people here is a resource to not just grow power and renewables in the state of Texas, but across the whole country. And let us know if we can help. Let us know if we can be of service. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Michael Iman. You can catch all of the Power Connect episodes over at Apple, Spotify. And if you listen to us on Apple, be sure to leave us a five-star rating. Helps with the algorithm. And make sure you listen to the entire podcast. We try to keep them short, punching to the point, so you don't waste any of your time and get nothing but the best information. We've got some great episodes coming up very, very soon. Mr. Hawk Dunlap, well control specialist. He's been in the oil and gas business for the last 30 years, but has some great insight on all the things that are going on in the oil and gas business. Tells us some great stories about how he became a well control specialist and compares what's going on to the rest of the world from an oil and gas well standpoint to what's going on right in our backyard here in the good old state of Texas and also gives us a little insight as to his most recent run with Miss Sarah Stogner and of course what the future may hold for him as well as far as uh, you know helping out consulting on the well control front. Also too we've got a great episode coming up next week the first kind of ever marriage uh, counseling. I kid we're not going to be talking any marriage counseling but we've got a power couple coming up next week Mr. Don Wright 
Managing Director of All Things Engineering over at Unico. And then his wife, you may know her as Electrified Veronica. They've got a project they're putting together on a Jeep conversion to an EV. And of course, how did that come about? Well, you'll have to listen to the podcast to find out more. Great episodes coming up. Subscribe, connect, follow, whatever you want to do. And if you want to be a part of the show, we know a lot of you do, reach out. Let's make it happen. Let's make a memory. Thank you to all of the guests, to all the audience, for all of you doing what you do. If you didn't do what you do, we couldn't do what we do. This has been the Power Connect Podcast, connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time. Wake up, all the builders. Time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do.